Jesus, as the song says, we live to bring you praise. It's why we're here. To worship and adore you, to treasure you above all else. To see you work in our lives, Lord. Open our eyes and lead us in the way you'd have us to go. Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ. Lord, as we are privileged to gather together again this weekend, Lord, we praise you for that privilege. May we draw strength from each other, Lord, even holding hands right now. May we feel the warmth of our neighbor's hand, our brother, our sister, and draw strength from one another. Lord, together we draw strength from you. You are our Lord. Please prepare our hearts. Father, help us to prepare our hearts for partaking of the elements a little bit later on. And just um, as you invited us to do, to feed on you, to be nourished by you, to sense you in us, living your life in us, Lord, satisfying the deepest cravings of our soul. We praise you, Lord, for allowing us to be together today. Speak to us now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's great to see you today. Is anybody uh, blessed here today? Anybody feel blessed? Amen. Uh, hey, you guys are sitting over there. You can't do that. You're messing me up. <laughs> That's a challenge for you. Sit in a different place some weekend when you come in. Just move around and see how disoriented you can get Pastor Steve. (laughs) Well, we are on a pursuit here at New Life these days during this season. We are running hard after God, following hard after Jesus Christ. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God, early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, to see thy power and thy glory, even as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee, thus will I bless thee while I live, I will lift up my hands in thy name. So if you're ever in a worship time here and you see people around you lifting their hands, that's an act of worship and praise. It's a, it's a re-surrendering, isn't it, to Christ. So we're pursuing God together, and we're, we're knee-deep in this series on Jesus. And today, we're going to look at a very intriguing event in the life of Jesus, an event that followed right on the heels of his baptism that we heard about last week, and also just preceded his public ministry. And uh, it's the temptation of Jesus. How many of you are familiar with the story of the temptation of Jesus? Okay. And since we're talking about temptation, I thought that uh, we needed a visual. So here's a cake. And we're just going to let this luscious, mouth-watering, delectable sight transfix us today. As temptations often do, right? And uh, I know some of you, I just lost you for the whole rest of the service. You're gone. You're already thinking about dessert after lunch. But uh, each of us has our own temptation that we're susceptible to. Maybe for you it's cake. I don't know. We each have our Achilles heel, so to speak. 
And so we're going to be looking not only at the temptation of Jesus, but also the temptations that we are sometimes um, accosted with. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 4 today. And you can also reach into your uh, worship folder and pull that study outline out. You can follow along with us. Some of the scriptures are on there as well. We're going to read about the temptation of Jesus, and we're going to look at Luke's account. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. That was the river Jordan where he had been baptized. And he was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Interesting, he was tempted during the whole 40 days. Sometimes we think it was just at the end, but I believe it was wave upon wave upon wave of temptation. And then at the end was the final wave, the tsunami wave of temptation. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Right off the bat, I want to make just a couple of quick observations just in what we've read so far. Notice that uh, Jesus was tempted right after a spiritual high, coming down off the mountaintop, so to speak. He'd been baptized. The voice of the Father boomed from heaven saying, this is my son. The Spirit came upon him, certainly a spiritual high in his life. And then right around the next corner waiting for him was the devil. Mark it down in your life. You have a spiritual high, an experience of God, a great moment with God. I want you to know that Satan is just around the corner ready to knock you down. It's just the way he operates. It's one way you can know that he does not love you. He's not celebrating that high with you. Second thing I notice here is that this season of tempting or testing was apparently part of God's plan for Jesus because it says that the Spirit is the one who led him into the desert to be tempted. One thing we need to keep in mind about temptation is this. Every temptation is also a test. Would you say that with me? Every temptation is also a test. In fact, the original word is the same word. The original Greek word is translated both temptation and test, depending on the situation, depending on the context. Every temptation is also a test. This explains why a loving God even allows temptation into our lives in the first place. You see, what Satan meant for evil, God means for good in your life. What Satan designed to trip you up, God has allowed in your life as a test to strengthen you. What Satan has designed for you to fail, God has allowed for you to pass. We need to remember that. Third thing I notice here is that Jesus was at a low point physically when Satan came to him at the end. It's just like the enemy, isn't it? Kick us when we're down. Find us at a low point, when we're hungry, when we're fatigued, when we're angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired. The enemy shows up, kicks us when we're down. It's kind of like in paintball yesterday. I was out with our students paintballing, and the way the game is played, you know, you're shooting at each other, but if you get hit with a paintball, if you get splattered, you're out of the game. And so what you've got to do is raise your gun over your head and walk off the field. Well, I got hit, and I'm raising my gun over my head to walk off the field, and guess what? I'm getting pelted. Like, pow, pow, pow. It's like, cut it out, you guys. I'm out. You're kicking me when I'm down here. It's just like the enemy to do that as well. It's what he did to Jesus. It's one of his primary tactics to attack us when we're at our lowest. Now look at verse 3. Here's the story. The devil said to him, If indeed you are the Son of God, 
Tell this stone here to become bread. And Jesus answered, read this with me. It is written, man does not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. I think he was right. I think it was a legitimate offer. So if you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, say it again with me. It is written, worship the Lord God and serve him only. Verse 9, then the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written. What's this? Satan quoting scripture? It is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Notice that Satan knows scripture. He knows the word of God. The problem is he uses it for his ends. He twists it and distorts it and rips it out of context like he's doing here with this passage in Psalms to use it for his ends, his purposes, to advance his agenda. Verse 12, Jesus answered this third temptation. It says, read aloud with me, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee In the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Well, first this morning, I want us to just kind of step back a little bit and try to understand what's really going on here in this story of the temptation of Jesus. Earlier in Luke, it tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old at the time. He was a young man. 30 years old is young, is it not? Very young. And Jesus was young. As I said, he was fresh off of this spiritual high of being baptized, hearing his father's voice of affirmation in his life, you're my son, I'm pleased with you. The Holy Spirit had come and empowered him. And in God's plan for Jesus, it was just about time for Jesus to step out of the shadows, to step out of obscurity, and to go on the public stage and go public with his life and his ministry and his identity. But first... As part of God's plan, this test, this very, very difficult series of tests. And so the Holy Spirit, right after his baptism, draws him into the desert to be tested. Now, on Satan's side of things, from his vantage point, I think what this was, this this showdown in the desert was a, a scouting session for Satan. I think this was the devil scouting out the strengths and weaknesses of his new adversary, his new opponent trying to gather intelligence so that he could find out what he was really up against. Gerard Hopkins wrote this, The temptation of Jesus was something of a get-acquainted session between Jesus and Satan. Satan may not have known for certain what kind of a being this Jesus was. So he challenged Jesus to perform miracles as a means of scouting out his adversary's powers. In essence, I think Satan was challenging Jesus. Come on, Jesus! Show me what you got. Show me your stuff. All in an effort to kind of draw Jesus out. We know that the devil had plans to eventually take Jesus out. And so it would be in his own best interest to find out what he was up against, to find out what Jesus' powers and capabilities were. But of course, as we read, Jesus 
would have none of it. And he refused, in essence saying, no, I'm not going to show you right now at your request everything I'm about. You'll see it in time. You'll get the picture over the course of the next three years, Satan. But I'm not going to reveal all that to you right now. Now, for many years, this story of the temptation of Jesus Christ kind of baffled me. It was confusing to me. Anybody else? You know, when I thought about it, it's just like, I'm not sure I, I understood this. Here you've got this 30-year-old young man, and you've got a world-class tempter who's trying to get this guy to sin. Wouldn't you think that Satan would maybe, you know, parade a bunch of naked women in front of Jesus? to try to stir up some lust? Or wouldn't you think that, that Satan would offer him, you know, like a million bucks to tell a lie or something like that? I was always confused by these temptations. They just didn't seem that evil to me, you know? Turn these stones into bread. What's so evil about that? What would be so wrong? Or, you know, jump off this building and and the angels will swoop in and catch you at the last moment, and all the people down below, all the crowds will go wild. What's so evil about those temptations? And then I thought, and and what would be so bad about giving in? I mean, if you hadn't eaten for 40 days, and you were hungry, you were starving, and you had the supernatural power to create things, what would be so bad about turning some stones into some wonder bread, you know? What's so evil? Where's the evil in that? What's so wrong with, you know, this, an acrobatic divine bungee jump off the temple, you know, with angel, cool angels swooping in at the last minute and, again, the crowd's going out. What, what is so evil? So let's try to understand what was behind these temptations, okay? Let's try to understand this. Temptation number one. What was it? If you are God's son, turn these stones into bread. Now, I believe that this was a temptation with many hooks, a very multifaceted temptation. No doubt Satan had been present at the baptism of Jesus. No doubt Satan had heard that booming voice coming out of heaven, this is my son. So he comes to Jesus, and I think he's taunting him. He's provoking him, trying to get a reaction, kind of like your teenagers do when they say smart stuff to you, trying to get a rise out of you as a parent trying to get you to react, provoking. Sorry, spit on you there. (laughs) Provoking, like I'm provoking these folks here. I think think he was taunting him. Son of God, huh? Son of God, you look pretty normal to me, Jesus. You look like all the other humanoids I see around. People are saying you're the Son of God. Prove it. Show me. I think he was taunting him. Satan never provoke you? Satan ever use another person to provoke you, to get under your skin, to taunt you, to try to get a reaction, a fleshly reaction out of you? Has it ever worked? I mean, he's been doing that for centuries. He thought it would work on Jesus. I'm going to taunt him a little bit. I'm going to try to draw out a reaction from him. Not only that, I think that as I've studied this, that Satan was trying to get Jesus to use his supernatural power for himself, like to satiate his own appetites. Okay, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry? Feel those hunger pangs? Use your supernatural power for you. But I think in refusing, Jesus was basically saying, that's not the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. I do have supernatural power 
but I'm going to use it for others. I'm going to use it to bless other people. And then certainly Satan was trying to get Jesus to get totally focused on his natural human appetites, wasn't he? This is what he does to people. He tries to get us fixated on our desires and what we want and what we think we need and and make that, you know, just elevate that and make that the most important thing about us that I get my desires met. And he has a way of taking even legitimate God-given desires for sleep, for food, for sex, and twisting those things and warping them and getting us all focused on those things as if they were the most important things in life. And Jesus basically said, I've got a spiritual appetite, Satan, that you don't know anything about. My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Man does not live on bread alone. It's not just about my physical appetites, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus said, nothing doing, Satan. I'm not biting. Round one goes to Jesus of Nazareth. Satan didn't give up, did he? Tries a new tactic. Somehow he was able to take Jesus to a vantage point where they could see all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know how. It doesn't really tell us how he did this. But this, this incredible vista of the kingdoms of the world. And at that moment, Satan turns to him and he says, Look, it can all be yours today. Just bow down and worship me. He makes this offer. In, in other words, he's saying, Look, Jesus... I understand that you think you're a king, which means you're in line to rule the world, right? Well, why go through all the suffering to get there? Just take it now. I'm offering it to you right now, minus the pain, minus the suffering, minus the crucifixion, minus all that. You know what he was doing? He was offering Jesus a shortcut, an easy way to the end goal. Has he ever done that with you? Has he ever offered you a shortcut, made it look so good, an easier way? You can wear that crown of kingship without having to wear a cross of shame. You can be king of the world right now. I wonder how many of us have ever been duped by that kind of offer of a shortcut, an easier path. How many of us live our lives taking shortcuts, always looking for the pain-free way to protect ourselves from suffering? It's so appealing, isn't it, that easier path? But what Jesus knew that he would forfeit for the sake of comfort and ease, he decided it wasn't worth it. Jesus decided this is a trade-off that's not worth making. All the kingdoms of the world now to worship Satan. And he said, no, I only worship God. Him only will I serve. So this offer of instant gratification instead of waiting for God's timing, this offer of a shortcut, an easier way, was refused. And the devil was stymied again. Round two to Jesus. So now he pulls out all the stops. The third attempt. He takes Jesus to Jerusalem and to the highest pinnacle of the temple. Now Josephus, writing in the first century, tells us that that would have been about 450 feet off of ground level. That's high. And that down below, thousands and thousands and thousands of people would have been milling about down below, 
Okay? So he's got Jesus there. And he says this, If you're the Son of God, as I've heard, jump. (laughs) Throw yourself down from here. What's he doing on this one? As I mentioned, he's trying to get Jesus to put on a big show in public right at the very outset of his ministry to perform this spectacular acrobatic act and win the adoration of thousands of adoring fans. And the crowd goes wild. You say, well, what's so wrong with that? Didn't Jesus want to attract a following? Yes, but not a crowd of fickle fans. Jesus was about recruiting a core of committed disciples, wasn't he? And there's a difference. And when I thought about this, again, I think there are two parts to Satan's strategy strategy with this third temptation. The first, there's undoubtedly an appeal to Jesus here to go the celebrity route, to be a celebrity Messiah, to do the spectacular right at the outset of his ministry to draw in a bunch of fans to start a movement with a spectacular display of shock and awe. But you know what? This wasn't the way of Jesus. And it's not the way of Jesus now. You know, we who live in the 21st century, I think, have to be so aware of this tendency because of the culture that we live in and and the, the seductiveness of the celebrity culture. Do you know what I'm talking about? We live in a culture that wants to make celebrities out of people. Some people are famous simply for being famous. Have you noticed that? And I think if our heartbeat as a church ever becomes trying to impress people, if that becomes our heartbeat, if if we become all about trying to impress people with our beautiful facilities or with our all-star staff or with our cool technologies and things. If that ever, the day that becomes the heartbeat of this church is the day that this church ceases to follow Jesus as our leader. It's not his way. The celebrity way is not his way. He refused it. You know, sometimes I see these guys on TV, these preachers on TV, and I watch them, and I, I just think, oh, man, you know, you don't really have to try and be a celebrity you're not going to be able to satisfy people anyway. Only Jesus can satisfy people. The celebrity route was just not Jesus' way. Not then, not now. I think there's another angle to this temptation that Satan was trying to get in as well. You know, jump, he says. Here you are. They're all down there. Jump. The angels will swoop in and save you at the last minute. Basically, it was an enticement to live recklessly and then expect God to bail you out. Isn't that what it was? Jump! Defy the laws of gravity, Jesus. God will save you. Just have faith. I think for Jesus, it was jumping off a building. For you, it might be jumping into a relationship, a mismatched relationship with an unbeliever. It might be jumping into loads of debt, loads and loads and mountains of consumer debt. It might be jumping into bed with someone who's not your spouse. It might be jumping ship when you're supposed to be at the helm steering the ship. It's all the same temptation. For the sake of a thrill, make a reckless choice 
that is outside the boundaries of the wisdom of God's word and then expect God to rescue you and bail you out. I wonder how many Christ followers do that. When God's given us his, his word, the wisdom and insight of the word of God and how to live a righteous life and, and, and choices that we should make and we make choices that are outside of those boundaries and then we say, God, rescue me. <laughs> Bail me out. And then I wonder how many people live this way. They do that, they make reckless choices and God doesn't bail them out and then they get mad at God. And some people stay angry and mad and disillusioned with God for the rest of their lives because He didn't come through for me. And the truth of the matter is, you lived recklessly. You did what Jesus said not to do. You shall not test the Lord your God by making reckless choices, jumping, and expecting Him to bail you out. Jesus didn't. He refused to fall for it. He refused to jump. And with that, the devil was done, beaten, discouraged. Nothing worked. Matthew's account tells us that at that moment, Jesus cried out, Away with you, Satan! And that's what happened. Satan went crawling away with his tail between his legs, fully convinced by Jesus that it was no longer worth his while to stay in the tempting business with Jesus. So he went off to bother somebody else. You know what I think? I think that Satan has to be convinced that it's no longer worth his while to mess with us. He didn't leave after the first temptation. He didn't leave after the second. It took those three, not to mention the waves in the previous 40 days. But it got to the point where Satan just got flustered and discouraged and he said, you know what? It's no longer worth my time, effort, and energy to mess with this Jesus of Nazareth. I'm throwing everything I got at him but the kitchen sink and he's not giving in. And I wonder how many of us have convinced Satan that we are a lost cause as far as his tempting is concerned. Well, Jesus did. He said, away from me, Satan, and Satan left. That's called successfully resisting temptation. That's called walking in victory. That's called passing the test. That's called kicking some spiritual tail for God. And that was Jesus. But you know what? If you're a Christ follower today, you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ you and I can also kick some spiritual tail when it comes to temptation. Do you know this? I want us to look at three reasons why Jesus was able to do this that we who are in Christ can do as well. I want you to think about these things. Number one, Jesus was able to resist temptation from the devil, number one, because he was deeply committed to God's mission for his life. Deeply committed to God's mission for his life. This one may not be you know, readily apparent what I mean, but think about it. Going into this season of testing, Jesus already knew why he was here. He already knew he was here to be the Messiah, Redeemer, King. And I think because he knew that, giving in to temptation just felt to him like getting sidetracked from his mission. I can hear him kind of muttering under his breath to Satan. I see what you're trying to do, but you need to understand that's not why I'm here. I'm on a mission from God. 
and I will not be deterred or derailed or distracted. I will not go to the left or to the right. I am head on in my mission for God. Do you know why you're here? Do do you know why you are on the planet? Why God has placed you here for this time, this season? You here? I think without that, that clear sense of why we're here, that temptation then looks so good, doesn't it? It's like, oh yeah, why not? Why not? Everybody else is, and it looks so good, and, and oh. But the people I know who are on mission, who know why they're here, they're like, no, I'm headed there. This is just a distraction, okay? You're just distracting me. Am I making any sense? When we know and understand the mission that we're on while we're here, then, then temptation becomes just getting sidetracked or distracted. I put a little book, little book, I put a little box on the back of your study notes. Yes? Is there a box there? Oh, good. And it says something like, do you know why you're here on the planet? I'd like you to take a moment and just think about that for a moment. If you had to put a phrase to it, words, why does God have me here on this planet? What would you write in there? Maybe take a moment and do that. I believe God has placed me here to inspire generosity. I believe God has placed me here to love others to him. I believe God has placed me. Do you know? Do you know why you're here? You can reflect on that a little bit. There's not just one right answer. I think there's as many answers as there are people in this room. But you have a unique mission. But what would scare me and what probably should frighten you is if you look at that box and you have a blank stare and you have no idea why you're here. Because if that's the case, then you are a candidate to cave into temptations right and left because you have no compass for your life that's directing you towards your mission. And temptation looks good. Why not? Jesus was deeply committed to God's mission for his life. He said, I must do the work God has given me to do. I will not be deterred. I think the clearer you get on this, the more committed you are to your mission, the more you'll see temptations as simply distractions. Okay? But that's not enough. Being committed to a God-given mission is good, but in itself it's not enough. Look at this second one. Did you pick up on how Jesus responded to each temptation? How did he respond initially to each temptation? It is written. It is written. It is written. You can't miss that Jesus was strongly fortified in the Word of God. You get that? I mean, he's out there in the desert, you know, and Satan's tempting him, and I don't get the sense that Jesus was out there going, oh, no, what was that scripture? Where are my scrolls? I forgot my scrolls. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Jesus was a man of the word of God whose childhood training as a young Jewish lad had pressed into him large chunks of the Old Testament committed to memory. 
And so Jesus knew the word of God. And because he knew the word, he knew the truth. And because he knew the truth, he was able to uncover and expose the lies that were concealed in each temptation that Satan presented. You see, just like fishing bait conceals a hook, every temptation conceals a lie. Did you know that? There's a lie in there. Whatever your temptation is that you're susceptible to. There's a lie. Have you ever caught yourself kind of thinking thoughts like this? Just this once won't matter much. I can dabble in this. I can play around with this. I can watch this. I can view that. I can go here. I can go there. I can hang out over there. Nothing's going to happen. Besides, it'll feel good. And beyond that, I deserve it. And no one's going to know. No one will know. No one will find out. And it'll be fun. You ever catch yourself thinking thoughts like that? You know what they are? Lie, 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 lie. All of them lies. A whole pack of lies. Someone will know. You can't dabble, just dabble, can you? Sin has cords that wrap around you and suck you in. If you needed another reason in your life to make a priority of reading, studying, listening, memorizing, meditating on the Word of God, it's to fortify your soul against temptation. Some of you get annoyed that I talk about habit one so often. You know, daily quiet time with God. You roll your eyes and there he goes again. Daily quiet time with God in his word and in prayer will fortify your soul so that you can say, no, there's a hook in that worm. (laughs) You're not going to fool me again. You may have fooled me all these years, but I know the word of God now. I know the truth now. And I would say this to you. Think about the area that you are most susceptible to cave in, okay? And then get your concordance out or ask your spiritual partner or someone who's more mature than you, where does God's word address this temptation, this Achilles heel that I'm vulnerable to, and write it out on a three-by-five card and memorize it. The word of God, so that in that moment, in that moment you can say, it is written. I don't talk about habit one for me. I talk about it for you. I want you to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Strong enough to walk in victory. Don't you want that? I want it for myself. I want it for you. All of our team here wants this for you deeply. Jesus was deeply committed to God's mission and He was strongly fortified in the Word of God. It enabled Him to resist the devil and Use the word of God as a sword, parrying and thrusting and getting on the offensive against the enemy. That leads me to the final and most important reason that Jesus, I believe, was able to resist Satan's temptations. You know, there's a big lie. There's a big lie that Satan has been laying in front of people since the days of the Garden of Eden to as recently as this morning. And this lie goes something like this. You know, God's not really that good. 
This world offers things that are much better than anything God would have to offer you. In fact, God just kind of wants to restrict your happiness. That's why he has all his rules, to restrict your happiness and your satisfaction and your fulfillment. Go ahead. Try these other things. Try them. They're going to be so much better than anything God would have to offer you. The reason I believe Jesus was able to so successfully resist these temptations is because I believe he was deeply satisfied in God. Deeply satisfied in his relationship with his Father. Satisfaction is so critical and we don't think about it that much. But it's so essential to who we are as as people. We crave satisfaction, don't we? If we think that's going to bring satisfaction... We'll dive in. It says in the scripture that going into this season of testing, Jesus was full of the Spirit. Everything I know about Jesus tells me that Jesus was full of God, fully satisfied in his relationship with his Father. The deepest needs of his heart were met because his Father was his treasure. And he was satisfied in God. And as a result, the temptations just didn't look that appealing. The other night I was uh, wrestling on, on the living room floor with my youngest son. I don't do that much anymore. You know, you get up after a round and say, I think we're done. And I got a chiropractor visit now scheduled for tomorrow. We're there just kind of goofing around, having a good time. And out of the blue, all of a sudden, he looks at me and he says, Dad, I heard you say something the other day that confused me. I heard you say that as Christians... We don't have to sin any longer. But they said, but, I, but over the years I've heard you say that after we get saved, we probably will sin. So dad, which is it? And in that moment, I felt very convicted about the theology that I've apparently passed on to my sons. This is what I want to teach to my sons and to you today. I believe it is possible for a follower of Jesus Christ to become so enraptured with God, so taken by the beauty of Christ, so consumed with passion for Jesus Christ, that what used to have a pull, the temptation that used to have a pull, starts to look disgusting that that thing that used to have such a pull on you that's like you gave in again and again and again it looks so delectable so delicious so mouth-watering to you that temptation whatever it is now begins to look more like this to you you know what this is this is a this is two pieces of nasty, cold pizza that's been sitting out on the counter for a week. It's got green hair starting to grow out of it. Any of you want to come up and take a big chomp? Listen, I think you can get to the point in your walk with Jesus that you are so captivated with him that what used to look like that to you now looks like this and you say, I don't need it. Are you with me on this? I don't need it. 
Jesus is my portion. Jesus is my portion. Jesus satisfies my soul. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what? No one can taste for you. No one can go down to Chipotle's this afternoon and eat one of their burritos and say, you know, I tasted that for you. You should believe me. It's good. You got to go taste it yourself. No one can taste for you and no one can taste the goodness of God for you. You've got to experience it personally. Am I telling you the truth? God is more satisfying. God is my portion. And Jesus was fully satisfied in his father. Oh, he, he was his treasure. And I think these temptations came along. And I think Jesus was so passionate about his relationship with his father. He, he was saying, you know, that? I don't need it. We had a discussion in our small group this past week. I hope you're in small groups, by the way. Having a great time. Our discussion, somehow we got off track a little bit. We we're talking about uh, Christians who cave in to sin. Very interesting discussion. And I had to pipe up at one point and say, you know, I don't think that as followers of Christ, we're supposed to be walking around in our lives all focused on not sinning. Like, oh, I hope I don't sin now. I hope I don't curse now. Hope I don't have a lustful thought this afternoon. I don't think that's how we're supposed to be living our lives. All focused on trying to not sin. That's just sin management. Trying to keep our sin quotient low. Through, you know, accountability or self-discipline and other good things. But I think we're supposed to be walking through our lives so captivated by Christ. So satisfied in Him that we say, I, 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 don't, I just don't need to do that. My soul is filled up with God. With God. I think our focus is to be on God and His glory and His beauty and treasuring Him above all else, being deeply satisfied in Him. And when we get to that place, temptation and sin lose their pull, and because they are, as John Eldridge puts it, because they are less wild lovers than God... They lose their allure. They're just not as in- exciting and stimulating and fulfilling and satisfying as God is. And the enticement that used to captivate you is now as appealing as weak, old, cold, nasty pizza. Church, how are we doing on this one? How are we doing on being satisfied in God? Or are we picking around in the scrap heap of this world looking to fill the cravings of our soul with stuff? How are we doing? I can tell you this. If you find yourself regularly losing ground, regularly caving in to that same old temptation that's got you again and again and again, it's probably because you still believe there's some satisfaction to be found in it. One of my favorite titles for God is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. He revealed himself in the Old Testament as El Shaddai. You know what that name means? The nourisher. The satisfier. And God makes this offer to us. He says, I, I will be your satisfier. I'm the bread of life. I'm the, the river of living water. Remember Jesus at the, with the woman at the well in John 4? And he says, I got some water that if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. In John 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never go hungry again. 
He's offering himself as the satisfier. Our team's going to come up right now, come back up, and we're going to worship in just a few moments, and we're also going to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table this morning, I want to ask you to do something. There's another little box on the back of your study guide, and it has this statement on it. When I'm not feeling satisfied in God, I tend to. Okay? When I'm not feeling satisfied in God, I tend to. I have a tendency to what? I'm going to ask you to reflect on your life for the next few moments. And write in there what your tendency is when you're not feeling satisfied in God. We're not going to put it up on the screens. You're not going to turn your papers in. This is honest time between you and God. What's your tendency when you're not feeling satisfied in God? And then I think it's possible that many, many of us today, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table, might need to humble ourselves before the Lord and say something like this. Dear Father, I am so sorry that I have sought satisfaction in all these other things, but not in you. I think it was John Piper who wrote this statement. All sin has at its root dissatisfaction with God. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? To be dissatisfied with God? But we want to be clean as a church going into this time of the Lord's table. And I wonder how many of us just need to confess that to the Lord. God, I... I can't explain it, but somehow I've been dissatisfied in you, and that's so wrong. Because you are everything I could ever hope for, everything I could ever want, my portion. Our men are going to come and um, bring the elements. Let me lead us in prayer, if I may. The Lord Jesus, you are our portion. Most of us would say we want you to be our treasure. Treasure you above all else. And as we enter into these moments of time at your table as your your people, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to, to where we have been seeking satisfaction in places other than you. Lord, we're your people. Talk to us. Lord, some of us need to confess caving into temptations today, confess sin. Lord, before we partake of the body and the blood, to be clean before you. And I pray that even now you would enable us to do that. In so doing, we would be washed clean. Come and be present with us now. In Jesus' name.